Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckland. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everybody. Today's episode is an interview with Bonnie McBird, and she is an author who is currently two books into a Sherlock Holmes trilogy. Uh, I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan. Uh, I read the original Conan Doyle stories growing up. I will consume just about any bit of Sherlock media, so it was a pleasure to read her book and talk to her about it. Uh, the book concerns whiskey and real-life events uh, in the French wine industry that led to whiskey being more widely consumed. We'll get into it in the interview. Um, also, something we don't get into the interview is that Bonnie McBird is one of the co-creators and co-writers of Tron. Yeah, the old Disney movie that happens inside a computer. Basically one of the most awesome cinematic experiences of all time. Uh, the subject of today's episode, she, like, did the story for that. Uh, we don't talk about it, but that's kind of a cool little detail. So yeah, see what the co-creator of Tron has been up to. Hope you enjoy. So Bonnie, hello. Hi. So I wanted to begin by asking you about Unquiet Spirits. How would you sum it up? What would be your you know, brief elevator pitch of the book. <laughs> okay. Uh, Unquiet Spirits is a Victorian Sherlock Holmes thriller. It's a full-length novel uh, written in the style of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He wrote short stories, 56 short stories, in fact, and four novellas, but no full-length novels. This is a full-length one, but in every other respect, it aims to emulate the originals. It's set in 1889, and uh, it's one of a, a, a three books that I'm writing for HarperCollins. Excellent. Um, so what is your background with Sherlock Holmes? How do you become a fan? Well, I fell in love with Sherlock Holmes when I was 10 <laughs> and I read, uh, study in Scarlet first. And then I got so excited about that. I read all of them. I kind of consumed the entire canon at age 10. I have a bit of a funny story about that. Um, when I was growing up, my, my parents had a huge dictionary in the living room that, you know, stood open on a stand and I was, I read a lot and I was always encouraged to look up words that I didn't know. And of course, you know, there were plenty of words I didn't know in this, in this book. So then I was also encouraged to use these words as soon as possible. <laughs> so I wrote a short story for fourth grade and the next day the, um, the, uh, principal called my mom into the office. I was in big trouble because uh, she pointed this out. She said, where did your daughter learn this word? And my mother started laughing and she said, she'll tell you tomorrow. And so the next day I came in and showed a study in Scarlet that the word ejaculate did not mean what she thought. <laughs> so um, I got, I get, I guess the point is I got really into Sherlock Holmes at age 10 and then all throughout my life, I, I've sort of kind of re-upped, I guess, as a, as a Sherlockian uh, over and over and over, you know, first the Basil Rathbone movies on TV as a little kid. Uh, later on, you know, the, um, all, well, there was the Great Mouse Detective, there was the Jeremy Brett series, fabulous Jeremy Brett series in the 80s and 90s. Um, there was the 7% Solution in the 70s. Uh, and a, a number of movies and TV and other things came along. Um, and then the Robert Downey Jr. And then suddenly Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Friedman. And boy, <laughs> I just uh, I just keep finding myself uh, attracted to this this character. Okay, I have two things I got to share with you. Um, first, Great Mouse Detective. I love it. Underrated Disney movie. Um, 
it's it's great. Uh, second, I I first read Sherlock Holmes when I was maybe twelve or thirteen. I got a big brick from my public library that was all of Conan Doyle, and um, you know, kind of learned a lot of those you know older, more archaic words from it. But later on in my life, I was in English as a foreign language teacher. One of my students was a um, bilingual Japanese student who had lived some time in the United States, and he wanted to read um, primary primary sources, like you know, actual real English books, not just textbooks. So I gave him some Sherlock Holmes stories. He asked me what ejaculate meant, and I was like, oh, God, I forgot that was in there. <laughs> Means spit out. <laughs> Right. It was a it was a very strange and embarrassing moment in the classroom and I had to think on my feet. I think which by the way, even though I emulate uh Conan Doyle's style and I try to emulate his vocabulary and also his sentence construction, I mean just generally his you know, his voice as close as possible. Um, you know, you can't do it perfectly because you're not him. But but the thing is I d I didn't use that word because I felt like it would stand out and it would make people stop reading and either laugh or, or just be puzzled. And I, I really don't want you to stop and, and pull yourself out of the story. So I in fact I, you you won't find that word in my in my Holmes books. But um <laughs> but uh I do I do in other ways try to try to create recreate the voice as much as possible. Because Conan Doyle was um he was a really pretty unique for his time period. He, he, he was considered to be um, what they, what they called cinematic, even though he predated cinema, he was called that because he, first of all, he wrote shorter, shorter than his, uh, his uh, contemporaries. So when they would wax poetic about some piece of scenery or the, or the sky or whatever, he would describe it and he'd be a little poetic in the style of the day, but he would move on. And the story, he just had this tremendous narrative drive, this push, this, you know, turn the page thing that, uh, uh, that made his stuff so riveting. So plus he used more dialogue than other writers in his time. And, um, and, and this narrative drive thing is, is another thing we kind of associate with movie storytelling. It's just this um, kind of a thriller uh, construction of his, of his short stories that just make you not want to put them down there. But definitely like, you know, read under the covers of the flashlight kind of books for kids. So uh, the novel that you've got, uh, Unquiet Spirits, um, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about is that whiskey features very prominently in the book it does. and <laughs> yes yes it does um i mean hence the title kind of yes well the spirits um, in the title unquiet spirits uh spirits is a kind of a double entendre because it yeah obviously it also refers to ghosts uh, right which there are many in scotland i mean scotland is considered to be haunted and most scots believe in some form of ghosts um, so it has so, to do with ghosts and it has to do with the whiskey business, which um, had a peculiar and interesting turn right at the, at the end of the 19th century. And that, that sort of serves as the backdrop for, for this particular adventure. So um, I guess you would like me to tell you about uh, about that, about what happened right right at that time. Um, whiskey, uh, prior to... I, I would, in fact, go for it. <laughs> prior, prior to the end of, of the 19th century, um, whiskey used to be a thing that, you know, manly men drank out on the fields while they're hunting or, you know, while they're wading, you know, knee deep in icy streams. Uh, you know, they had a little flask or whatever. Uh, 
And what we call single malt now is called self-whiskey then. Uh, and so it was just a, a man's drink for people up hunting and fishing. And uh, it was not something that was drink, drunk in polite company. You didn't drink it in, you know, a club or a, or a bar in, in London necessarily. So, um, but over time, they realized, they sort of realized they really wanted to establish whiskey as a drink for the social classes. And several things were were getting in the way of that. One is the original self-whiskey was very sharp tasting. It was really uh, pungent and it didn't actually suit the palate in London. Uh, the second thing they had, the, the, before the trains became so ubiquitous, they, they really didn't have a good distribution method for getting the whiskey down to London or down to the down to England in, a, in, a, in large quantities. And the third thing was, is that once they invented blends, then they found that they could create a reliable brand name that would deliver on a certain flavor, a certain taste. Um, and so they could, you know, brand themselves. So with these changes in mind, they, they marched in, but there was yet another reason why whiskey took off at the end of the 19th century. And here's where it ties into my story, my Sherlock Holmes story. Around the uh, 1870s, <clears throat> something called the phylloxera epidemic swept through France and other areas, but mainly France, decimating the vineyards. It was a little parasite came in on a cutting from America. And um, the thing just, the French uh, vines were tremendously vulnerable to this uh, parasite, whereas the American ones weren't. Kind of like the way, you know, um, you know, smallpox and other things decimated the Native American population. I mean, things that were not, or smallpox isn't the exact example, but there were illnesses which they they didn't have immunity to. So, so in the same way, the French vineyards just took a beating, and basically by 1889, when the story took place, there were there were more than 45 percent destroyed. This made uh, brandy and cognac and wine and champagne very expensive. Uh, and and rather scarce, and so boom, <laughs> these whiskey guys, w w fueled with these other things that I mentioned, came to town and set themselves up, and particularly a couple of them, uh, a man named Buchanan and another man named Tommy Dewar, uh, and of course these names are famous now, came into town and, and started marketing their product, and they invented modern marketing. <laughs> they branded themselves, they became personas, they they, you know, they they sort of um, moved in in the social scene. James Buchanan rode in a carriage with red wheels, and he wore a red waistcoat, and he was very charming and flamboyant. Tommy Dewar um, <laughs> did something really funny. He he had the wheels of the carriages that were delivering his whiskey engraved in letters so that as they rolled through the mud and the horse dung in the streets, they embedded the letters Buy Dewar's whiskey. Buy Dewar's whiskey. So all over London, all over the streets, there is this you know embedded you know, advertising message. So this kind of crazy stuff is going on. And anyway, so whiskey kind of became suddenly more popular and 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 a drink of the social classes. And and uh, Buchanan even had his accepted his he created the whiskey of the House of Commons. If you, um, I write, so I write these Sherlock Holmes novels for HarperCollins. And um, one of the things I like about um, uh, previous things that I've seen, a friend named Les Klinger did a three, three volume annotated version of the original Sherlock Holmes, took all the Conan Doyle stories and annotated them and, and, and put illustrations. 
So inspired by Les and his annotations, I did annotations to both my first two novels, uh, and those are up on my website. So you can read some of the stuff about the whiskey business uh, on www.macbird.com. And if you look up the annotations for Unquiet Spirits, you can read about this and see some of these pictures, which are pretty funny. How did how did whiskey end up coming to the United States? Because like as an American whiskey drinker, and I do like whiskey, um, I often think of whiskey as coming from, say, Kentucky as well, opposed yeah, to, I mean, say, there, Scotland. There are different different kinds of whiskey, and they come from different plants. And they they were, I mean, whiskey was brought over with the initial or drinks, you know, fermented drinks, of course, have been around for a long, long time. So, um, I, you know, I don't know the full history of American whiskey, but at the same time, I mean, you know, we have bourbon, which is a kind of whiskey, but it's a little different. And, um, and so, you know, I mean, that was, it was kind of going along at the same time. It was not, um, you know, wine was, was drunk in the, in the States, but I think our, our other drinks came up a little quicker, um, Brandy was the drink of choice in Victorian England. So brandy was a thing that you um, administered almost medicinally. <laughs> you know, anytime when somebody was upset or, um, you know, or was sick or weak or had fainted or whatever, bring them a brandy. And uh, whereas I don't think, I don't really know, but I don't think that was so much the case in the U.S. But what was going on in the U.S. when... Um, uh, this is, of course, prior to all the California vineyards that 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 came later on, because uh, we're looking at the end of the 19th century. So, um, but the I, I can't really speak to the the American whiskey industry all that much. Just the Scottish one, which is what I where I focus my uh, my research. Okay, I have um, two major whiskey questions for you. Uh, first one: What do you look for in a whiskey? What what and what would you recommend? to people who are like looking for like a good Scottish whiskey to imbibe? Well, there's great, um, you know, there, there are tons of different whiskeys uh, from Scotland and uh, we're talking single malt now. Uh, and um, there are books on this. In fact, uh, I have a, I have a wonderful friend named Charlie McLean uh, who's written several books on the topic. Actually, he's considered the world's foremost leader in this foremost expert, I should say. And he was the consultant on the book. But um, there, there are these flavor profiles that are kind of depending uh, on the area of Scotland. Uh, but I kind of think of whiskey as dividing into two main categories, which is peated and non-peated. Uh, peated means um, uh, when the uh, grains are being dried, they're dried with um, uh, smoke. It's, it's, there's, they have a smoky flavor given because peat is being burned more or less peat is being burned um, to to dry these grains in one of the processes. So um, you have a very peaty uh, kind of flavor. And a lot of the whiskeys from the island of Isla, which is spelled Islay, I-S-L-A-Y, have, you know, Lagavulin and Lafroig and all these are are very peaty. And some people love that. My per that's a personal uh, taste thing. I personally prefer the Highland uh, whiskeys, and they're kind of uh, maybe sweeter and they're gentler maybe, and they don't have this strong, they don't have the strong um, peat uh, flavor. Sometimes they'll have a very slight peatiness to them. Um, but whiskey, the people who create whiskey, it's really a tremendous art form. And they will claim that so many things go into the flavor of whiskey. So the original source of the water 
for one thing. Um, the amount of protein that's in the barley, they all have, they're all made from barley. The amount of protein affects the flavor because it also affects the amount of sugar. Uh, how it's fermented and how it's dried, what, what, the, uh, what is burned while it's being dried, then uh, how long it's, uh, it's sort of nurtured and, and soaked and in what kind of temperature. Then, then the actual distilling process, and that's where those things go in. The, they look like giant copper dinosaurs. They're kind of two, um, teardrop shaped and they have a big uh, tube over the top, all made out of copper. In the old days, riveted, so it looked like a Jules Verne you know, science fiction flying machine. Um, and so these things, then the distilling process, you know, how, what, what is the shape of that, of the still? Even that affects the flavor. So my personal favorite, I, I have a, I have a personal favorite, and it's um, the Glenmorangie uh, Quinta Ruban. It's, or, it's spelled like Quinta, Q-U-I-N-T-A, Ruban, R-U-B-A-N. And one of the things I love, it's a Highland, uh, uh, Northern Highland uh, whiskey. It's made in a small town called Tain. And, um, but what's special about this whiskey is that it's matured, and that's another thing that affects the flavor, it's matured in casks that have previously had port in them. So this it's called port finishing. And so it, it, it imbues the whiskey with this slightly reddish color and this slightly sweet, nutty finish to the to the end of the flavor. It's really lovely. That's just my personal personal favorite is is that one. But um so in the book, um there is a port matured uh whiskey, which is called McLaren Garnet. Uh, the fictional one, and they're trying to get the royal warrant for this fabulous new whiskey that they've created, uh, the family that's, uh, that's central to the story. So Sherlock Holmes has a history with alcohol, of course. Um, if you look at the canon and how what appears in the canon with alcohol, um, you know, he, he mostly what you refer to here referred to is brandy. Because as I said, it was the it was the uh, fix for everything in the, in the Victorian. Watson is always administering brandy, um, but they also drank um, a lot of wine. Apparently, Holmes is a wine connoisseur, and they drank uh, rum is featured in the story, but and cocktails are only mentioned once. Although they were they it was the, the end of the nineteenth century was when cocktails really were first. Uh, popularized mainly in America though um, and then um, but they they drank whiskey with soda uh, at 221 B Baker Street <laughs> so they did drink whiskey after all so somebody who was drinking whiskey or brandy or other alcoholic beverages back then uh, would they have tasted differently than what we have now can we even know that whether you know 1800s whiskey would have like been different from what you can get at the store today? Yes. Uh, they, they do know a little bit about it. Um, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't stay. You can't taste it exactly the way it was then because it doesn't stay uh, that long, but um, uh, uh, the self whiskey before the blends existed w w was very, very strong and pungent. Um, the, I believe, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I believe the alcohol content is as it was then. Um, uh, but I think before, uh, the end of the 19th century, it was much stronger. Uh, and that's the whiskey that was drunk as I described out in the fields, um, by, you know, when you're hunting and stuff and it's freezing temperature and you take a swig to 
give yourself some liquid courage or whatever. Um, so I believe it was uh, stronger at the time. Um, whiskey, by the way, uh, and the spirits of the time were were pretty um, pretty strong alcohol. And I can't. I'm, I'm not too good at the numbers. I can't. I have it written down and it's in my annotations. Um, but I can I can tell you this that uh, whiskey and rum uh, of this time and and other drinks like that were uh, were strong enough to to um, to pickle, to pickle uh, a human being. And then you've probably heard the, of Lord <laughs> Nelson. Who, oh, yeah. Um, you, you know that story. Um, they call it tipping the admiral because um, he was killed in battle and they put him in a barrel of rum to take him home to preserve the body. But uh, supposedly people took drinks out of this. Uh, I don't know. If this, this is crazy, crazy uh, story. But, um, yeah, so alcohol was pretty strong. Um, and... They, it was it was always drunk with soda at that time, so I, I don't really know other than that it was very pungent um, until the blends came around. Uh, that and the blends I think made it be more like what we're used to drinking now. Okay, uh, I have another whiskey question for you that I want to ask you. It's sort of silly, but it is something that I know whiskey fans talk about um, and sometimes argue about. Is the spelling? Is it? with an E-Y on the end or just a Y on the end? It and depends do, on, do, yeah, it depends on whether you're Scottish or American and uh, the Scots do not put the E and the Americans do put the E. Uh, I don't know why. <laughs> there are okay. jokes about that, but I, I, I think it's just one of those things like color and color. I mean, they just spell them differently. Fair enough. Um, lastly, I know that this is not the first Sherlock Holmes book that you've uh, written. If folks want to pick up your work, um, you have another earlier book that they could pick up, right? Yes, it's this is the second in a uh, currently three book plan. Um, this is a, uh, as I said, the, they're they're full length novels, so in that sense, they kind of differ from uh, the originals. But the first one was Art in the Blood. And um, I decided with both Art in the Blood and Unquiet Spirits that uh, in order to extend Holmes to a, to a full length, you know, to really be um, uh, engaged and also to have a problem that the, the, the smartest man in the world takes a, a full novel length to figure out, it has to be complicated. Um, and so it also, it also needs to have a little bit of thematic content. So Art in the Blood uh, touched on the notion of um, what is the trade-off for artistic gifts? You know, you, you get something for this. You, you have incredible perception, increased perception. You can uh, recognize patterns quicker. Um, you, you, have, you see things that other people don't see. And the trade-off, of course, for these gifts uh, is, is often a kind of an emotional lability or, or up and, you know, Holmes is, is subject to depression. He self-medicates with uh, cocaine and uh, morphine in the originals. So, um, you know, what's this trade-off for having the artistic temperament? So that's the background of Art in the Blood. And it also features a, a kidnapped child and a, an art theft and several murders that all, you know, <laughs> come together uh, and takes them down to Paris. And then, and during the Belle Epoque, uh, which is kind of a fun, exciting journey. Um, but Unquiet Spirits takes place uh, one year later, and that explores the theme, uh, you know, Given again the double entendre about spirits, um, of course there's ghosts because it's Scotland and there's a haunted castle, of course. But I wanted to explore the notion of what happens if you don't deal with ghosts from your past. You know, these are metaphorical ghosts. 
Maybe they are, <laughs> or maybe they're ghost ghosts. But what happens if you don't deal with them? And um, we know that Holmes is kind of damaged goods. There's no question about it in the canon that he's he's a bit of a mystery himself about women, for example, but about other things as well. And so we 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 know little of his early life. And I thought what might be interesting is if he had a ghost in his past that he had to come to terms with in order to solve the present day mystery. So that theme got thrown in there. For unquiet spirits. So both both um, Art in the Blood and Unquiet Spirits do have this kind of slight exploration of Holmes's character, but not so much that it takes you away from the genre, which is straight ahead mystery thriller. All right. Excellent. Bonnie McBird, thank you very much. All right, folks. Hope you enjoyed that. Thank you for listening. As always, I am on social media at Joe Streckert on Twitter. And Bonnie McBird is at MacBird. That's M-A-C Bird. She's also at MacBird.com. Check out her work there. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Weird History Podcast. And again, this podcast relies on you. Go to WeirdHistoryPodcast.com to become a monthly supporter. And also, we always appreciate reviews on iTunes. Go there, give us stars, reviews, all of it. That would be excellent of you. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next time.